Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee with HP Litigation Conferences. This is a collaboration between my company and Law Street Media <laughs> and Fastcase. Today we're going to talk about the cyber insurance market. There's a great piece in the January 11, 2021 Harvard Business Review. I like to mention Harvard. It was my backup school. Harvard Business Review, uh, January 11, 2021. And uh, let's see, what was it titled? Something like uh, the cyber insurance market has problems. I don't know. Something like that. You'd think I would know because it's right in front of me. I'm going to quote from it. In 2020, that was last year, <clears throat> the world seemingly entered a new era of cyber attacks. Although there have been decades of viruses, breaches, and other forms of attack, last year saw increased bad actor sophistication, a propensity to pay in ransomware cases, and a broad swath of geopolitical uncertainty. You think? Uh, these are conditions that hackers have found favorable, the author of the piece says. He goes on to say that the severity of financial consequences has been profound, Ransoms have rocketed, that's alliteration, from five-figure price tags into the millions, including $10 million reportedly paid by Garmin. Several ransom demands were far higher, he goes on to say, before even being negotiated downward, according to clients of mine, that's the author, according to his clients worldwide. All of which is further escalation of a worrisome trend, he says, a recent report by Hiscox shows insured cyber losses of $1.8 billion in 2019, up an eye-popping 50% year over year. That is eye-popping. Our uh, writer here goes on to say that facing the prospect of major financial fallout from an attack, C-suites, I don't know what I was about to say there, C-suites around the world have turned to cyber insurance. Insurers are issuing more policies, and the amounts of protection available are increasing. In 2020, according to data proprietary to the team I lead, this is the guy talking here, the global insurance community saw the first cyber insurance program to exceed $1 billion and the second. This is the last I'm going to say from this, uh, this piece because, you know, I'm sure there's copyright issues. However, our author says, the momentum that has propelled the sector this far may be running out. Oh, no. Insert a clip of insurance professionals diving for their fainting couches. The cyber insurance sector may still be in its infancy, but there are signs that it's hit a, hopefully temporary, plateau. There are a few likely causes of this slowed Growth, the uh, the author writes, and that's all I'm going to say about it. But, you know, I'm fortunate when I read that article, I wrote a note to the author and he wrote back. Can you imagine? Tom Johansenmeyer. And that is not how you say his name. It's Tom Johansmeyer. He's not related to Scarlett Johansson or Scarlett Johansenmeyer for, for all that, uh, for all I know. Maybe he is. Tom is head of PCS. That is a very risk business. PCS, uh, let's tell you what they do. 
they investigate and provide independent loss estimates on big catastrophes and large individual losses. The benefactors being, you know, their clients, but their benefactors are being the being, I'm going to say that again, the benefactors being the global risk and capital supply chain. Because, you know, that global risk and capital supply chain could use some help. Tom has focused on the on the broad and rapid expansion of expansion, expansion or expansion. Let's just say the growth of PCS leading the team into Japan, New Zealand and other Asia Pacific regions in 2019, as well as Mexico. Well, that would be in the North American region. Uh, Does anybody have a globe anymore? Tom is the architect of the PCS entry into global specialty lines, most recently adding large risk loss reporting to the group's portfolio. Previously, Tom held insurance industry roles at Guy Carpenter, where he launched the first corporate blog in the reinsurance sector and Deloitte. And who doesn't love blogs? God knows I do. And he's a good writer, as uh, as the article will tell you. So take a look at the Harvard Business Review. So uh, but before I get into the uh, interview, I just want to go out on a limb and say, I think Tom is not your typical corporate guy. I'm sure he, I'm sure he owns a tie. Uh, I bet it chafes his neck to wear it. <laughs> so he's a man after my own, uh, my own collar. That made no sense. He's an avid. I don't think saying he's avid quite describes it. He's uh, maniacal. That might be too strong. Anyway, he loves cycling and running and sometimes wearing costumes doing these things. So it's fun to just, it was fun to look for his photo. Let's just put it that way. He's a, he's a character. He's a pistol, as my grandfather would say. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, those kind of, the kind of people who, who, can't seem to give you a straight answer you know you ask them a question and they choose their words carefully you know because they don't want to offend anyone like a client or a boss yeah that's not this guy and that's just one of the reasons i enjoyed speaking with him so let's get after it here's my interview with tom johansmeyer of pcs no it's not pcs it's pcs a very risk company Hope you enjoy it. Tom Johansmeyer, thank you very much for doing this today. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. But let's let's jump right into the first question. Uh, now we're talking about the cyber insurance market, and uh, according, you know, I read your article in the Harvard Business Review. So, the question is: Is growth slowing in this market? And if so, what do you think is the reason for that? It has slowed, and there are a number of reasons for that. So we were watching the trajectory of the market through, say, 2018, even 2019, moving up toward around 5.5 billion U.S. dollars for original premium worldwide uh, by some estimates. And then it looked to pull back to around 5 billion from there. So the the numbers are inexact enough the way folks put them together that you can call it kind of even year to year. Maybe it pulled back a little. But however you stack it up, it it still turns into a low-growth environment for affirmative cyber insurance. Now, the main difficulty is the loss environment, right? But as you know, with things insurance, there are a number of things that come into play. The loss environment's not a problem. If you get paid enough, your rates are, you know, if you can get the rates you want, you can absorb the claims, on and on and on. What we're seeing is a whole lot of stuff that's just come together 
since 2018, and particularly to 19 and 20, mostly with ransomware, that have really strained the market. So here's the deal. For years and years and years, protection buyers were quite comfortable to pay what little they did. Yeah, and we've got to remember that you know, in an insurance market, you know, the availability of the product doesn't make it sell. You know, you've got buyers on the other end who've got budgets to deal with and so forth. And for a long time, uh, cyber insurance was thrown in with other covers or it was a bolt-on. Maybe you add a couple of basis points to the rate online uh, to get cyber chucked in. And after a while, that's the expectation you set. So if you want to go from a two online product to a 4% rate online product to reflect an evolution of the risk, what you're really saying is, hey, buyer, pay me twice as much. And nobody ever goes like, huh, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Let me write that check right away. And of course. <laughs> Glad to. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so that, that's the challenge is the threat environments become more pronounced and more expanded. And, you know, certainly the loss uh, profile frequency have changed, right? The nature of the loss, the cost of the loss, the frequency of the loss is all vastly different from a few years ago. Um, and you can say the pricing has changed, but the question becomes is, you know, has it changed enough relative to the underlying risk? So those are kind of the, the big kind of top end ostensible issues that are slowing growth in cyber. Uh, in addition okay. to that, you've got, you know, the capital side of it as well. Insurers have always been over-dependent on, or I say over-dependent, they disagree with me, uh, but I stand by it. Uh, certainly heavily dependent upon reinsurance. And without increases in reinsurance capacity, even as insurance to demand for reinsurance has continued to increase, well, that really kind of ties your wrists a little bit more as well. So long-winded answer, but let's just put it all, you know, wrap it up with a bow. Those are the main factors constraining growth right now in the cyber insurance market. Okay. So um, it, it seemed to me that before there would be a big cyber event and that would stimulate some more demand. Is that, do you, do you think that's still the case or are they so frequent that maybe they don't get as much attention? It's tricky. So you can stimulate demand, but that doesn't necessarily translate to a buying opportunity or, or a cleared transaction, right? Now, let's say I've got a house on the beach um, and it's not insured and I see a hurricane coming. I call my insurance agent. I'll say, hey, I've got some demand for insurance. You know, I want some insurance. And he'll say to me, I bet you do. Call me after the storm passes. You know, you know when when you need it the most is when the problem is most pronounced, and it's also when the product is most expensive. So, you know, as a protection seller, I might come back to you and say, "All right, the threat environment right now for cyber is awful. Um, I will write it to you, but I will want ransomware excluded, or I will want our evil strain of ransomware excluded." Or I will write it now to incept at some later date and not allow any prior, any pre-existing ransomware strains that are in the market. That could work out, but as a buyer, especially in a world where you're used to paying two online, you're all this baggage and think, oh wow, those are the only things I want. You know, 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, so you're telling me the product's not worth it. These are the challenges we run into. There's certainly more demand for it. Demand at the right price gets difficult. And then coming up with supply at the appropriate price and terms uh, in a market where it's harder and harder to attract additional capital uh, have made, uh, made it harder to meet the demand side. Okay. So I guess to some extent, even if a company would pay the highest possible premium, the insurance, some insurance companies or many insurance companies may not even offer the coverage. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got to look at this and think of the whole concept of protection at any cost, uh, which is best exemplified by the defense budget of North Korea. You know, they they spend you know a massive amount of you know their their kind of tax revs or whatever hard currency they get right on right. defense, and it's crippled the economy. Obviously, other factors have been problematic there as well. But as a company, you think, okay, you know, if I'm going to buy $100 million in cyber insurance, am I willing to spend $90 million for that? Yeah, no. I mean, right. um, I mean, there have been extreme property catastrophe cases where I've seen, you know, a hurricane offshore and somebody would pay 60 cents on the dollar, you know, for 60% premium for insurance cover. But those are extreme cases with an imminent storm and also regulatory capital and other internal pressures coming in, right? right. Anything over 50%, you know, you're, you know, kind of out, out of binary territory by that point. So when you're looking at payment at any price for original insurance, you're still probably single digit. Um, and in, you know, what we saw last year during the pandemic, I mean, this is fascinating, right? Because you had, a lot of factors that really made you think about what is an existential threat, right? Ransomware was relentless. You had the pandemic, right? You had, you know, a number of hurricanes and development from prior year hurricanes as well, on and on and on, supply chain issues, you name it, it sucked. And you now have to look at, you know, your kind of expense pressure, your asset side pressure, you know, you're looking at the different threats to your business and you think, okay, I'm paying, you know, two and a half million dollars a year for cyber insurance right now. How much do I really need that? You know, if, uh, if I'm a cruise company, the pandemic has already, you know, kept people off my ships. You know, if I'm a, you know, self-improvement uh, home goods retailer, I know that stuff's not getting to my door and that two and a half million dollars could give me a lot more flexibility. So you had a lot of companies really take a harder look. I think there were a number of folks who just maintained their premium spend and accepted reductions in cover. Some drew back considerably. When major telecom company, I'm told, took $250 million off their tower, mm. so it took it down to $500. It's still you know, one of the 50 largest cyber insurance towers in the world, but you know, you just took it down by a third. So, you know, there's certainly, you know, it, it used to be fashionable to say to your board, yes, I only stopped buying cyber at this level because there's none available beyond that. And I would buy more cyber at any cost. I think boards of directors were actually faced with that prospect and said, no, you won't. 
Yeah, right. That's right. So I guess to uh, to try to feel some uh, sympathy for the insurance industry, <laughs> no one ever seems to. Um, so I'll, I'll take a stab at it. But I mean, obviously, uh, all their uh, their whole business is based on numbers and predictions and probabilities and all of this. But they it seems like with cyber risk and the same with pan- the pandemic, you know, maybe they should have seen the pandemic coming. I don't know. Um, I'm sure they have people there at their big companies always watching these emerging risks. I know one guy, that's all he did for a living. Um, but with cyber, it seems like the threats are happening so quickly or new threats are evolving so quickly that it's probably difficult to ensure something since, I don't know, I don't know, when did ransomware become a thing? I mean, five years ago, it wasn't a thing, was it? Um, yes. And suddenly, bang, it's there and it's everywhere. Yes, it's interesting to see this evolution, right? So up until 2016, the the average headline event was cyber breach and privacy, right? Someone taking your personal data and then the company has to buy credit monitoring and so forth. Okay. And in insurance circles, the, the conversation went, okay, breach is the big problem right now. But what we really worry about is professional liability. You know, we see reputational risk being a massive issue. DNO is going to be, you know, extremely problematic. And those claims go on forever. And we're still waiting for that to come true. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what the, the reputational risk that never materialized, because I think what we're seeing is if consumers liked you before you had a breach, they'll still like you, but they'll be annoyed. If they hated you before a breach, they now have a reason to, you know, big surprise. <laughs> Airlines, utilities, I mean, insurance companies, much to my chagrin, I think they get a bad rap. I think insurers actually do a pretty good job of treating their customers well, and it's tough with a product that's not tangible, right? It's a promise to pay. But these are companies that have had cyber issues that, you know, consumers weren't crazy about them beforehand and got little sympathy after. Uh, On the other hand, you stop shopping at Target. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, right. you know, you, you've got to factor in, you know, I, I don't think cyber changes reputation. There, there are some extreme cases where that can be the case. Uh, and the DNO issue, there, there have been some rumblings about it, but it hasn't been the onslaught that people were talking about a decade ago. So yeah. 2017 is the pivotal year because that was not PETIA, right, which is a wiper, not ransomware. It posts ransomware, but what it really does is just wipe your servers. Mm-hmm. Ransomware locks your stuff up and for you to pay. And if you don't pay, you don't get your data. Not Petio is based ultimately on something called Eternal Blue, which was an offensive cyber weapon. I think that originally had its roots in Stuxnet, um, which was a kind of Western offensive cyber instrument. And unfortunately, it got out into the wild, as they say, and mm-hmm. was turned into not Pega. So you evolve from Wiper then to ransomware, which is the monetization of that concept. But I think the biggest issue is not necessarily the speed with which the threats are changing, although I do admit that's an issue. It's the commoditization, the rapid commoditization of those changing threats. So, you know, this stuff's sent to Eternal Blue to pet yet and not pet yet. Um, that's an evolution that's troubling. The ability to take something like Eternal Blue and quickly turn it into not pet yet and let it loose 
is far more troubling, right? The when you look at the supply chain for ransomware right now, you know, it's not a single or vertical sort of deal, right? You've got guys who go find exploits and they sell those exploits to middlemen who then bundle them up and sell them to actors. So, and then you can also download by open source uh, tools to get yourself into the cyber attack business as well, whether it's distributed denial of service or ransomware, what have you. What that means is you don't have to be good at this. You don't have to be smart. You know, you, you can be bored, lonely, disaffected, not good at having a boss. And take you just stuff. described me completely. <laughs> <laughs> we just met and you get me. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, go it, ahead. Anybody yeah, can it, do it, this. It's our similar fashion styles. Totally. Um, <laughs> no one will. No one needs to see that. But yes. it, it's exactly true. I mean, look, I, re- I remember the early days of the internet when I was a digital one of the early digital marketing guys in insurance. And you know what we found was that you know in the blogging world, for example, your main talent needed to be attracting traffic. Yeah, you know, rather than actually being a writer or having sources or so forth. And right. you know, it was really easy to get that kind of operation up and running. And I know marketers who pulled their hair out having to kowtow to travel bloggers or mommy bloggers or all these other, you know, you would, as a writer, you'd call them quasi-professionals at best, but they'd accumulated massive audiences and had access to cheap tools and the time and ability to build content. So cyber attack and hacking is really uh, an offshoot of that same concept. And what it does is vastly democratize the ability to threaten so at any given time, there's just a lot more threats coming at organizations. Yeah, and they're easy to do, and they're easy to buy. Um, and organizations don't always keep up to speed on basic locks on the doors. You know, there's right. a lot of coverage of the Colonial Pipeline interaction, or interaction between Colonial Pipeline and the ransomware actors. And they're saying, like, you know, what did we do wrong? And, you know, the actor walked them through it. It's like, well, this is what you didn't patch. This is what you didn't stay on top of. Um, yeah, you know what? If you don't put a lock on your bike, right? Yeah, you know, it's your own. You know, as a New Yorker, I say it's your own fault when it's not there. I know there are people who remind me that in a perfect world, personal property should be respected. <laughs> as, as I said earlier, with my garage, they'd have to find my bike first. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know where it is. I think my wife sold it and didn't tell me, but there's just no. It's in there. It's in there somewhere. Um, now you mentioned, um, let's see, you, you mentioned uh, reinsurance earlier. Is there anything more to say about that? Is that have a lot of, have losses got up to the reinsurance level? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And that's become a, a big problem, right? So insurers probably cede 50% of what they write out to reinsurers. Um which means that's when I was talking about how much insurers rely on reinsurers, this is, you know, just the best example of it, right? That's a massive amount of risk that reinsurers take on. And the law do flow up. Absolutely. And you've got reinsurance underwriters are now saying, Hey, you know what? Rates are harder than they've ever been. You know, let's get in there. You know, this is what we've been waiting for. And, you know, chief underwriting officers, some of these reinsurers are saying, hey, not so fast. You know what? You just had an, another tough year and it looks like conditions aren't getting any better. So we're not inclined to give you more capital right now. 
And normally, in other lines of business, especially property catastrophe, what reinsurers would normally do is turn to the retro market, retrocession market, and say, hey, you know what? Let me lay off some of my risk to you. Let me you know, clear the decks a little bit, and I can go take on more risk, right? You know, you're just getting more conditional capital that way. Okay. Uh, there is, in property cap, the retro market's great. It's been around for decades. Everyone knows how to do it. Cyber the only reinsurers not writing cyber right now don't want to. So they're not going to write retro. And, you know, the reinsurers who already write cyber reinsurance can't do retro because they're just going to wind up increasing their uh, concentrations for different risks, right? So if you and I reinsure the same insurer, let's say we each take half of that, right? And then you Mm -hmm. lay off half of your book to me. Now I've got three quarters of that underlying insurer, could be a problem. So yeah, it, is uh, I mean, um, do people have excess layers for insurance, or is that just in general? How does that okay. work? So the the big towers, right? The big programs. When you talk about the towers, you're talking about the excess, the layers. excess layers, right? So you'll gotcha. You'll yeah. Okay. Your self insured retention, and then you'll have a primary lead. You know the that first layer who also kind of runs the claim process if a claim happens. And then, yeah, up the top, you've got guys writing like a 50 million excess 450 million layer who are probably being paid 50, 60, 70 basis points online for that, for that business. Um, which, okay, you know, if you can make it work on a capital basis, you know, if you can use that underlying capital uh, diversified manner, all right, you're going to wind up making more than just 75 bips on every dollar you commit. All right, fine, you can get there. Um, but, you know, if you get smoked, like if you have a limits loss, you got paid 75 bips for however much you lost, right? So if you lost $10 million, what is that? Like 7,500 bucks? No, 75,000 bucks. Either way, it's not nearly enough bucks, right? It's 10 million. Right. Okay. Um so you, uh, we already discussed, yeah, you, I was going to ask you about the, you said that you have a supply and demand problem in the cyber world. You kind of said that in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting yeah. too, because there's a lot of new capital coming in right now and everyone's making a big deal about insurance linked securities as possibly being a source of capital, particularly to the retro market, right? Because these are guys who haven't written a lot of cyber. They're accustomed to writing reinsurance retro. They're always looking for diversifying risks. Um, one of my clients down here in ILS fund was really blunt. It's like, okay, we've got an insurer, uh, an insured writing to an MGA on behalf of an insurer who lays it off to a reinsurer who then wants to lay it off to me. But why am I going to take on some risk that nobody wants to touch? You know, we're, we're not stupid. And it's a fair assessment. I know a lot of folks, particularly in the London market who think, Oh wow! Here's a crappy risk that nobody wants to touch. Let's go to the ILS market. They take weird stuff, you know. And what they don't realize is ILS is generally collateralized. So if I'm deploying a dollar of capital, I've got to have that dollar sitting in a trust someplace. It's not like a rated balance sheet where I can use it a co- that dollar a couple of times. So if I'm only getting paid five percent rate online, you know, my own fees are going to take up a decent chunk of that. So what am I getting my own investors? You know, it, it's difficult. You know, the other issue is, you know, rates for property cat are hard right now. 
So if I'm an ILS fund and I can write property cat reinsurance in Florida, which is the most maturely modeled and best understood kind of catastrophe risk in the reinsurance market, right? So I can get 10 online, 10% rate online for writing Florida, or I can get the same rate online for writing cyber, right? And let's assume through some kind of magic, we know that there are equivalent risks. Okay. We're going to write Florida anyway. Because they're going to say, I don't, I don't care how good your magic is. They're not, they're not really equivalent risks. Okay. All right. <laughs> I got you. Some, some interest from the ILS market in cyber. Um, but with all the cat losses going on right now, they've had to focus the core business. A lot of the uh, newer capital that's come in over the past couple of years has either excluded or severely ring-fenced cyber. Okay. And the next question, I'm not sure, uh, you, you wrote that for mature lines of business, there's often a target amount of coverage in the market. And so then I asked the question, how is cyber risk different? I don't even know what that question means. Can you read that to me again? Can I for a second? That's okay. <laughs> I don't think it's worth it. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think my I'm sure, I'm sure it must have been interesting because the editors let it through, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think my cat walked across the keyboard. I don't I don't know. I don't even know what it meant. I didn't want to ask it, but I thought, well, maybe there's yeah. something now I'm not gonna ask it. Um so you talk about uh companies need need to look at cyber risk in a different way. So I don't know. My takeaway, I called a friend of mine who does he represents policyholders and said, I just read this article and my takeaway is that cyber risk isn't even it's crap. <laughs> That's probably not what you meant at all. But um, you you say that uh, I, companies. I, I, oh, I sorry. Go ahead. I can see the part. Of it. I, I actually I wouldn't back away from that assessment entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd heavily caveat it because my clients are insurers, but I do think there's some merit to that statement. Okay. And there's no there's no way I'm leaving that in. <laughs> oh. I mean, I wouldn't want your. I, I, your I, have, I have no, I have no fear. Um, okay. what, so, I mean, to give you an example, I was on stage at uh, a reinsurance conference. Couple must have been three, four, four years ago now. Um, and I was on with the CEO of Catastrophe Modeling Company and uh, the former reinsur- chief reinsurance buyer for AIG. And I was like, guys, be honest. To what extent do you think the cyber product as it is today? Um, is like designed with your customers in mind. They burst out laughing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, what I would say, and if you want to ask the question in a way you're comfortable with, um, I am comfortable asked, uh, answering that, you know, there is a problem between the rate charge um, and what customers are buying. And I think both sides are at fault. No, I'm comfortable asking it that way. It's back to your point about the bloggers who maybe they, they weren't that good. They just wanted to get attention. I think that kind of question is uh, maybe not a great way to ask it, but it will get attention. <laughs> so that's well, all I care. Well, no. What I, what I would say is well, here, here's the deal. I think there are big problems with the cyber product as it exists right, right now yeah. and as it has existed. I think it's gotten better over the past couple of years. But the big problem is you've got buyers who are unaccustomed to spending what should be kind of risk appropriate. And so they're going to say, you know, we're not going to get over whatever, two, 3% online, fine. 
And then you've got sellers who want to be in this space and say, okay, you know what, for two or three online, this is what we're going to give you. And what happens is the buyer thinks, all right, I'm not really getting what I want, but at least I'm not paying much for it. Yeah. I take right. a box with my risk management people. And, you know, when I have to answer an RFP, I can say, yes, we have X amount of cyber cover. And as a seller, I'm like, you know what? Yep. I'm in the space, but I have ring fenced a risk I don't understand. So it can never be worse than X. Right. Yeah. It does seem like a box ticker uh, sometimes. Um, so you, uh, so you say that, uh, companies need to look at cyber risk in a different way, maybe as a piece of a solution, but what, what more could you say about that? I mean, what, what should they be doing? Is it just really just start doing everything right and start paying attention or what's the, what's the solution then? But I think, uh, let me first say, I don't think anyone can ever be expected to do anything right. Okay. Uh, you know, there are always going to be gaps, right? I, I remember in basic training when I was in the army, learning how to build a defensive position, you know, you're the last stage of building a defensive position was continue improving it until you have to use it. You never have all the time you want. You're never going to catch everything. Um, some patches, for example, in networks may conflict with mission critical systems. So you can't just rush those out. there's a process here. And I think you have to respect that companies will have to go through that process and they won't get everything. So as a corporate, right, as a company who would be buying insurance as part of a cyber risk management plan, I think they need to look at the risk. They need to think about their insurance buy, not in terms of just budget for the box ticking exercise, but really run through some scenarios and think like, what do I need protection for? How likely is that occur to occur and what, right? Mm-hmm. And what kind of protection can I get for that that I can afford today? Then how do I prime the market so that I can grow more to get the protection I need? You know, some of the big players, the big tech players have done a very good job of it. Their early insurance buys were not annual exercises, right? They came at this with a years long plan for being able to accumulate the kinds of limit they have today and want, you know, five or six years from now. Um, I, I think that contemplation of captives for certain types of risk is a good idea as well. Uh, I know one professional services firm that has a captive quota shares out hundred percent of what's in the captive to reinsurance, but uh, doesn't um, ship all that risk out on equivalent terms. So they retain, I believe, the privacy risk, but ship out like the BI, the business interruption stuff. So there, there are strategies you can use. And even like in a case like that, okay, I've got my captive, I've reinsured all the, you know, kind of monetary limit, um, but not on equivalent term, uh, conditions base is fine. Maybe I can go out and do an alternative risk transfer uh, transaction for the remaining slice, you know, maybe a, a parametric based on the number of records lost or uh, a cloud outage contingent BI cover based on how long the cloud service provider was down or an industry loss warranty. There are a lot of ways to go about that, right? So I think, you know, kind of taking a fresh look at the battle space can go a long way. And I remember talking to a risk manager a couple of years ago who was looking at some of these alternatives. We were working together on it. 
he was like, okay, so you know, I got the limit up to here. I was like, okay, yeah, now above your existing limit, we could look at a parametric for certain scenarios. Like, oh, wouldn't it even be better if I could just get people to, you know, add limit on the same underlying basis? I was like, well, yeah, but you can't. That's why we're having this conversation. I mean, that's the mindset, right? So the tough part with insurance is most people don't buy it because they want it. You know, as a driver, you buy it depending on your state because you have to. Maybe you buy more than you have to, but that decision to buy more excess what's required by uh, law isn't the same as starting from zero. Mm -hmm. And even like a lot of property and DNO, that's all driven by kind of industry tradition and convention, right? If I'm a multinational retailer, the limits I buy for things like property and DNO and so forth aren't all that different from my peers on a like for like basis. Okay, cool. When you get to something like cyber, it's a, it's truly like a, discretionary buy right nobody's making you do it except in some limited cases and in limited cases you can comply on a limited basis so how do you go to a company and say look i want you to spend three four or five million dollars on insurance it's not easy right you you really need to walk through the threat environment the business implications the imminence of those threats uh, and really just kind of show like if you're going to spend x amount on property cover that protects you from hurricane and strike riot civil commotion and tornadoes well this is the cyber version of that maybe you should look at it that way yeah and you say people aren't required uh, required to have it i mean i'll talk out my ear just a little bit but i could see like with a lot of contracts that people sign to do business with like to do business with a bank or something i might have to say i have cyber risk insurance, or I have to show them my, my uh, policies and procedures and practices, yeah. things like that. So sometimes to do business, you're required, obviously required to do it, right? Yeah, but it's the requirements aren't all that onerous, right? You've got right. You know, someone like you know, Colonial Pipeline had a $15 million program. Okay. You know, yeah, I get you. could they have gotten more than that? Probably not. I mean, right. You know, and when you think about it, let's talk about big limits, right? Because you, I talk to a lot of underwriters and brokers and so forth, and they always want to understand the market, right? So welcome through this exercise, right? You want to find out how many big companies have cyber insurance. What's the first thing you do? Ah, yeah, we, we look at the Fortune 500, right? And you figure, okay, those are 500 big companies. There's got to be some big cyber in there. Well, the number of companies with at least $200 million in cyber limit is around 240. So less than half the Fortune 500. Mm-hmm. Now, the Fortune 500 doesn't include private companies. Right. So think about those, you know, accounting and consulting firms and, you know, private sports, professional sports leagues and, you know, you, you can get a sense pretty quickly of, you know, some big data publishers are all privately held. So, you know, big that, law firms, big, there, um, there's a law firm in the top five programs by size. Okay. Um, which, you know, at first you think what, and then it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. There have been some issues with law firms getting hacked. Yeah. So when you, you step through this, 
a third of the largest companies, give or take, or a third, I'm sorry, a third of the largest cyber programs, say X200 million, um, are private companies. And that really now skews how you look at what's out there. Right. Only probably 40 or 50 companies with at least 500 million in limit. Yeah, it's funny. You talk to folks like, oh, who do you think has at least 500 million in limit? Oh, well, I'd go for you know, this bank, this bank, you know, this tech company, that tech company. Yeah, you, you've got, you build a list of what you think are big, important companies with massive cyber exposure. And it doesn't take you long to get to three times the size of the actual list. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. that's where you wind up. So it, uh, it, I don't know if you know the answer to this. Are you monitoring emerging issues? Is there a, is there something coming after ransomware that uh, that the people are keeping an eye on, or are we still waiting? Well, truth be told, I think we're still waiting, and I'm certainly not aware of it yet. Although, you know, I could have just said to you that, you know, I'm perfectly aware, but I don't want to amplify those trends. Sure. Yeah, truth, truth yes. I've got no idea. I <laughs> <laughs> I like the mysterious answer. I like the mysterious answer better. Yeah, I can tell you, I'm, Tom. I'm cursed with honesty. And there you have it. See what I mean? Cursed with honesty. <laughs> and that's why I enjoyed talking to Tom Johansmeyer with uh, PCS, a very risk company. So once again, you've been listening to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee, your host. Hey, take a minute to uh, rate us. I'm sure you like this uh, this podcast. I'm going to be positive about that. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you like this podcast. I'm sure you want to give it a rating. Maybe even subscribe. And if you're interested, write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. I uh, frequently reply, and I'm often courteous. So once again, Emerging Litigation Podcast, a collaboration between HB Litigation Conferences, Law Street Media, and fast case.